morning and welcome to our worship service here at Twin City Bible Church. As you can tell by the beautiful decorations that have been put up, some of our volunteers, we have entered into our Advent season where especially our singing begins to focus on the incarnation of our Savior Jesus Christ and the reason why he was sent by God the Father. And so let's begin our musical worship by singing together a familiar Christmas hymn, Hark! The herald angels sing. If you're aided by looking at notation, the music, you can look at number 199 in our blue hymnals, number 199. But if you do turn there, please note that the, we're adding a stanza, and it's something that our hymnal left out. We haven't rewritten one, but one of Charles Wesley's stanzas that didn't make in the hymnal is worth singing. And so we'll sing a total of four stanzas this morning of Hark, the herald angels sing. Please stand together as you're able to sing in worship this morning.
just saying Christ was the second Adam. He came to do what the first Adam failed to do. Because of his work, we can now as good Christian men and women rejoice with heart, soul, and voice because Christ came to save. Let's sing those truths together through the hymn, Good Christian Men Rejoice. as we hear from this gracious God through his word as our senior pastor, Carrie Hardy, comes and reads for us. This morning I'm reading Psalm 6 from the Psalter, the sixth psalm. It's a prayer of David, a psalm that David wrote as he prayed for mercy in times of trouble. O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger nor chasten me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am pining away. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are dismayed, and my soul is greatly dismayed. But you, O Lord, how long? Return, O Lord, rescue my soul. Save me because of your loving kindness. For there is no mention of you in death, and Sheol, who will give you thanks? I am weary with my sighing. Every night I make my bed swim. I dissolve my couch with my tears. My eye has wasted away with grief. It has become old because of all my adversaries. 
Depart from me, all you who do iniquity, for the Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. The Lord has heard my supplication. The Lord receives my prayer. All my enemies will be ashamed and greatly dismayed. They shall turn back. They will suddenly be ashamed. You can be seated as I go to the Lord on our behalf this morning. Our Father, we come today with grateful hearts as we think about you and all that you do for us, as we think about how gracious you are to us. We find ourselves like the psalmist so many times in difficult circumstances and facing challenges that we don't know the resolution to and and we come to you in our, our burden, in our time of weeping and prayer, and you're always so gracious to hear us. Lord, we are weak like that. We need you. We need you to hear our prayer. Father, we are frail people, but you are the one and true living God who knows all things and can do all things, and everything you do is right and good. You do good because you are good. And so we pray like the psalmist does, bringing our burdens to you. Lord, we ask that you would rescue our souls even from the angst that we are in today, perhaps of things that are going on in our lives right now and difficulties we're facing. Rescue our souls, bring to our hearts a sense of joy, again, the joy of our salvation. And Lord, we are so grateful that you do forgive our failures You forgive our sin. We confess our sinfulness to you. You know it, and you're still so faithful to us. Your loving kindness is everlasting, reaches to the heavens, no end of the supply of your grace toward your people. Our Lord, we are burdened about our enemies. We we see that really they need you, that that's the problem. They hate truth, and they hate you, and Many of our government leaders are like that. They don't come to you with burdens. They look to their own selves for solutions, and they even try to rule our nation and our state and our city from that perspective, and they, they cannot do that. We know that. So, Lord, open their eyes to the truth that they might come to see who you really are and that they might be saved from their sin and forgiven. Father, we pray for this service that all that takes place would not only be pleasing to you, but edifying to us as your people. We pray for our missionaries today, especially in Italy, as those men serve so faithfully preaching and teaching and shepherding people, that you would give them great grace to accomplish the task you've called them to. All of this we ask in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. We sing often in this time in our calendar year, uh, an invitation to worship, a call to worship that says, oh, come all you faithful, joyful, and triumphant. And we should rightfully sing that because in Christ, all of his faithfulness and his joy and his triumph has been given to us. And yet our experience tells us The reality is we carry with us until Christ returns or calls us to glory our fallen humanness. And so we admit that there are times when we are unfaithful, when the bitterness of circumstances or sin would tempt us to hide from God in shame. And yet as this hymn of invitation tells us, even those of us 
which is all of us who are unfaithful, are invited to come to Christ. We can bring nothing. He is the offering, and so come. This may be an unfamiliar new tune and text to some of us, so I'm going to have Jillian sing verse 1 and verse 2 in the chorus, then have you join with the whole team to rejoice that even when we are unfaithful, God is faithful.
Father, thank you for your son, the gospel. We do ask now that those of us who are in Christ, as we look to an example of a man bitter and broken by sin and yet restored by the grace of God, would we revel in that grace and those outside of Christ come to him as a sufficient Savior in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. We are in John chapter 21, as you would expect this morning, John chapter 21. I need to begin with a little bit of a grammar lesson, at the very least remind you that as English-speaking people, we have borrowed words from other languages that we use commonly. For example, let's just take French for a moment. We do all speak French at some level? If somebody asks you that, do you speak French? You can say, yes, I do. Here's some of the terms that you can say in French that we use, somewhat commonly used, words like armoire, chauffeur, cliché, cul-de-sac, debut, expose, fiancé, protege, and rendezvous. It's all French. And I could add one more that you have likely said. It's this one, déjà vu. We use that term. Déjà vu refers to the feeling that you have seen or heard something before. It's, it's this idea that something you're experiencing seems very, very familiar you might hear someone say like this, I had, a, I had a strong sense of deja vu when I entered the room. Or maybe you say things like this, when the car broke down, it was deja vu, and so on. Well, I mention this French term because it describes what Peter must have been thinking on that morning that Jesus made breakfast for his disciples on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. I'm not saying that he knew this word, but what it represents, he must have been overwhelmed with that feeling of deja vu there. It's what we looked at last week in John chapter 21. We looked at verses 1 to 14 of John 21. And there we saw that the risen Christ appeared for the third time to a group of disciples, at least the third out of three times that John records. The first two were in that room in Jerusalem when the disciples were hiding out behind closed doors. Jesus miraculously, you'll remember, uh, materialized in the room and showed them his crucifixion wounds. We saw that back in John uh, chapter 20, I should say. John 20. This third appearance, though, is what we began to look at last week in John chapter 21. It was in Galilee, not in a room in Jerusalem. And this is where Jesus told his disciples to go wait for him after he had been raised from the dead. He told them to go to Galilee. And so uh, there are seven of them that went there as a group, Peter and six others. And there they are 
at the Sea of Galilee in Galilee on the shore waiting for Jesus and Peter and six others decided to go fishing during the night. After catching nothing, Jesus, who was standing on the shore and whom they did not recognize at first, told them that they should cast their net on the other side of the boat. And when they did, they caught so many fish that they couldn't even get the full net into the boat. Well, John was the first one to recognize Jesus, and then he pointed that out to Peter. Peter couldn't wait and started swimming to shore, you'll remember. But eventually all of them, they all got back to shore, and there they discovered that Jesus had created a a charcoal fire and that he had even prepared a breakfast for them of fish and bread. It would not be surprising that during that breakfast, And during the conversation that Jesus had with Peter after breakfast, which we'll look at today, it wouldn't be surprising that Peter was having what we would call deja vu moment. Why? Well, because of the setting. They were sitting around a charcoal fire. And Peter was being questioned about his relationship with the Lord. We'll see that today. So think about that, sitting around a charcoal fire, answering three questions about his relationship with Jesus. That had to have felt like deja vu to Peter because he had already experienced that, right? Back in John chapter 18, the night of Jesus' arrest. At that event, in the courtyard outside the high priest's residence, the text tells us in John 18, there was a charcoal fire burning. It's the same word for the fire here in John 21. It was that night that Jesus was being unjustly tried after his arrest. And Peter had shown up. He was huddled there in the courtyard, huddled together with some of the members of the temple guard, the very ones who had arrested Jesus, sitting around that charcoal fire. And someone that night began to quiz Peter about his relationship with Jesus. Someone asked him three questions. And Peter denied that he even knew the Lord all three times. Luke chapter 22 tells us something that happened, that on the third denial, that was about the time that Jesus was brought out into the courtyard bound. Jesus heard Peter's third denial. In fact, Luke tells us that Jesus even turned and looked at Peter. And that look, the Bible says, caused Peter to go away weeping bitterly over his failure. So back to John 21. Here's this breakfast setting at the seashore. It matches rather closely to that setting in John 18 where Peter denied the Lord. But fortunately, as we will see, the outcome of this scene today is markedly different than what happened in John 18. In this scene, in John 21, we find Peter's restoration to apostolic ministry and service. Since Peter denied Jesus three times on the night of his arrest, in our passage today, we find Peter confirming his love for Jesus three times. Now, before we look at this conversation on the seashore, Between Jesus and Peter, keep in mind that the Lord had evidently already appeared to Peter privately. And we know that because of a couple of verses. One is in Luke chapter 24, verse 34. It says this, someone was saying, 
the Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon. That's Peter. In 1 Corinthians 15, in those first few verses where the Apostle Paul is really summarizing in such a great way the gospel message, what it is we believe, and then what happened after Jesus was raised from the dead, he says in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 5 that Christ appeared to Cephas, that's another name for Peter, and then to the twelve, a separate appearance to Peter. Now, Scripture doesn't record any details of that meeting. Perhaps in that private meeting, Jesus spoke words of forgiveness to Peter. We don't know, but it doesn't matter. Even if Jesus had already forgiven Peter, the other disciples needed to hear Peter's reaffirmation of his love for Christ. They needed to hear Christ recommissioning Peter so that they would be able and willing to follow Peter's leadership in the future. And that's what we find in our passage today in verses 15 through 17, I believe is how far we'll get. John 21, 15 to 17. Here we find that Jesus had arranged a similar charcoal fire beside the Sea of Galilee. This time it wasn't the temple guard members sitting around the fire, it was Jesus. He would look at Peter again. But it's a different look now, and he would be the one asking the questions this time. But again, it is three questions related to Peter's relationship to Jesus, one question for each of Peter's denials. So let's look now at this very poignant scene, and sadly, it's the closing scene of the book in chapter 21. Our examination of this final scene today and then next week when we complete it will be our last two studies of the Gospel of John. Hard to believe. Well, this entire final scene on the shore of the Sea of Galilee divides into several segments. We're going to look at one of those segments today. Today we're going to examine number one, the probing inquiry. The probing inquiry. It is through this inquiry, marked by three questions, that we find on display God's amazing, wonderful grace that not only forgives sinners, but actually restores them to usefulness. But before we briefly look at the questions from Jesus and Peter's three responses, we actually need to take a few moments to address an issue of interpretation related to one of the terms that we find here. Peter is going to be probed about his love for Jesus. Jesus is going to ask him three times, and we're familiar with this scene. Jesus is going to ask him three times, Peter, do you love me? And then in this account, we find two different Greek terms for love used. Agapao, the verb, from which we get agape love that we talk about a lot. And phileo, another Greek term for love. Both those terms are going to be used in these questions. Now, what I'm about to go through is a bit of a seminar for you. So as my second grade teacher used to say, I still remember it to this day, she used to say, put on your thinking caps. And I don't know if I ever learned how to do that or not, but I'm telling you, put on your thinking caps for this seminar for a moment. A little tedious, but hang with me. We need to talk about this because of these two different verbs. That fact that two different verbs for love is in this passage has led some 
to believe that the two verbs are distinct in meaning. In other words, people from that camp would say we find agapao in the first two questions from Jesus, and that's a word for love that's indicating a stronger love, even divine love. And so Jesus, with those first two questions, was intentionally setting the highest standard for the kind of love that Peter was to have for him. But Peter answered each time with the other verb, phileo. What some, those in this camp that I'm referring to now, they would say it's a weaker form of love, just human love. And that Peter used that term in his answers because he was just so ashamed of his failures, he just could not use the same term Jesus was to talk about his love for Jesus. But then on the third question, we find Jesus choosing that other term, phileo. And so they would say what Jesus was doing there was condescending to Peter's level, in a sense just settling for what Peter was able to articulate, even though it was not the kind of love Jesus wanted from him. And Peter, of course, used the same term again in his answer. So in summary of that view, it's commonly argued by some that agapao is the stronger form of to love, but Peter, now very humbled by his failures, used only the weaker verb each time, and Jesus as well, by the third question, chose to switch to the weaker verb, graciously yielding to Peter's choice of term. That's the summary of that view. It's an interpretation that sounds very appealing. The problem is that it's not correct. It's problematic for several reasons. The seminar begins now. And you can do a lot of reading on this. You can read uh, many commentators, D.A. Carson, Andreas Koschenberger, uh, a lot of good, solid commentators. I'm summarizing all their stuff here. First of all, you need to know this. The term agapao, said to convey the notion of divine love, and thus a so-called stronger form, is used in the Gospel of John More than once, many times, several times, with reference to human love as well. Even evil humans, this word is used about them in texts like these. Back in John, chapter 3, verse 19. John 3, 19 says, This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light. Agapao. John 12, 43. For they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. It's the word akapao. In addition, the term phileo, said to connote human love, is used for the love that the God, God the Father expresses, just as agapao is used. For example, John 3, verse 35. The Father loves the Son, agapao. John 5, 20. The Father loves the Son, phileo. John 16, 27. The Father himself loves you because you loved me. And both of those are phileo. In John 11, we find the account of Lazarus being raised from the dead. And it says there that Jesus loved Lazarus. And it uses, again, both verbs. In John 11, verse 5, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, agapao. And then in verse 36, later in the passage, it says the people who are looking at this and saying, see how he loved him, phileo. The expression of the disciple whom Jesus loved. We've seen that along the way in this book. Guess what? Both terms are used for that expression. 
These two verbs are obviously used interchangeably in this gospel. Second, outside John in the New Testament, agapao is not always distinguished by a good object. An example of that would be 2 Timothy 4.10 about Demas. Demas loved this present world, uses agapao. Third, we can go to the Old Testament, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. When they translated the Hebrew into Greek, that's called the Septuagint translation, they had to find Greek terms to translate the Hebrew term for love. You'll find both terms used. For example, Jacob's preferential love for Joseph is expressed with both verbs. Genesis 37 verse 3, agapao is used. Verse 4, phileo is used. I could give you more examples, just one for the sake of time. In Proverbs 8, 17, it says, I love those who love me. Here are the verbs. I love, agapao, those who love, phileo, me. Fourth, sometimes people argue from the standpoint of, the, of the, where these verbs come from, that agapao is a verb, I've even heard it in an extremely wrong way, that the Christians created that term to use. No, it was around. In fact, it came into prominence even 400 years before Christ. It was a prominent verb for love, one of the standard verbs for love, and one of the reasons was by that time in their history, phileo began to take on an additional meaning, also meaning to kiss, and that's because the verb for to kiss began to fall out of use, and they began to use phileo to describe kiss, and so agapao didn't have that meaning. It came into use. 400 years before Christ, not because it was a peculiarly sacred word. Fifth, it doesn't help to argue even from the standpoint of the range of meaning of a term because context has to determine that. Some would say, though, well, since agapao never means to kiss and phileo does, then agapao is a higher form of love. That conclusion is invalid. In fact, Almost every scholar would say that synonyms enjoy differences of association, differences of nuance, differences of coloring, all within their total semantic range based upon context. Context determines that. Sixth, John uses many stylistic variations in his writing, even in this chapter, even in our passage today. For example, in our passage, these are not the only two synonyms. He's going to tell Peter, feed my sheep, tend my sheep. Two different verbs, words that that are using, that are synonyms to describe really ultimately the same thing. He's going to call his people lambs one time, sheep another time. They're the same people. Peter himself is going to respond to Jesus in a few moments. We'll see that he says, "I, I know you know everything and things like that. And when he says that three times, he uses two different words for know. So based upon just the the way there are stylistic variation in John's book here, it would be difficult to see why that first pair, agapao and phileo, should be taken uh, so drastically different from one another in their meanings. I'm going to add one more to this seminar. Seventh, you just got to remember something. This whole conversation likely occurred in Aramaic. So John is recording two different words for love in Greek, two different words for knowing, two different words for the idea of tending, sheep, and so forth, all to capture the stylistic variations of what's said in Aramaic. So for all these reasons, I can assure you, most scholars you'll read, most 
doubt that the key to understanding this conversation, this interview, if you will, is these two verbs and the difference of the verbs that Jesus is using. It's not that. That's not the point. So with all that settled, here's the sermon. Now, both the seminar and the sermon will be on the final exam. So this period of interview here between Jesus and Peter really centers around three questions. So guess what our outline is? Question number one, question number two, and question number three. There's the outline. Pretty easy. Question number one, verse 15. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? So they're still on the beach. And when breakfast was over, Jesus initiated this conversation here. And notice that he addresses Peter, Simon, son of John. That address constitutes what I've referred to you before, what's called an inclusio. It's something at the beginning of something and then something at the end of something, like bookends. That's happened in the text before. Here, this is an inclusio being formed with something all the way back to chapter 1, verse 42. That's what this is a reference to. John 1, 42, Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon. This is when he's calling him to be an apostle. You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. Jesus gave him a nickname, the one we're familiar with. So ever since he was called to become a follower of Jesus there in chapter 1, from that point on, as an apostle, a follower of Jesus, he was known as Peter. So the point here in John 21 is that Jesus intentionally reverted to Peter's former name, referring to him as Simon, son of John. It amounts to wiping the slate clean for Peter, as it were. I mean, before there could be the thought of restoring Peter, to his calling as an apostle, there first had to be a reestablishing of what it even means to be a disciple, a follower. And the great requirement to just be a follower of Jesus is supreme love for Jesus himself. So the Lord graciously took Peter back to what constituted the basics of what a relationship with him consisted of. More basic than the calling to be an apostle is the calling to be a disciple. Wipes the slate clean, starts over. But that does lead us to another interpretive decision that has to be made here in the text. A little bit of a seminar number two. There is disagreement over the phrase that Jesus added to the question. Do you love me, he says, more than these? What does the more than these refer to? I'm so glad you asked. There's a couple of views that are common, somewhat common, that are not the right views. First of all, some try to make this phrase mean this. Here's what Jesus was asking. Peter, do you love me more than you love these other disciples? Could it be that? Not really. I mean, that question doesn't gel with any theme that has surfaced throughout the gospel of John. It's it's a view out of nowhere, you could say. Another view, view. Some try to say, second, that it refers to Peter's career as a fisherman as well to all, as all the items that would be associated with that career. You know, the boats, the nets, the bass lures, the depth finders. No, they didn't have those, but they had nets and boats. And so the question would be something like this. Peter, 
Do you love me more than fishing? And all this paraphernalia that goes with that? I mean, that view is possible just from the standpoint that at least boats and nets have been mentioned. But in John chapter 1, that calling of Peter, it wasn't being called. It doesn't really emphasize that he's being called from fishing as much as he was being called to Jesus. And though some try to put a negative spin on the fact that Peter went fishing in John chapter 21, what we looked at last week, while he was waiting for Jesus in Galilee, we don't actually find anywhere in the text any negative overtones applied to what Jesus was doing, what Peter was doing. Jesus never says anything about it to him. And just remember, it wasn't just Peter that went fishing. All seven of these disciples in this group went fishing. So why would Jesus focus only on Peter about that? Neither of those views have very good support at all from the text or the themes that have come up in John. Instead, this third view, the right view, is the reasonable one. And it's based on something Peter himself has already articulated in John. Back in chapter 13, in the upper room, Peter had boasted of his courage. He had boasted of his reliability and faithfulness and commitment to Christ. And he did that in the presence of the other disciples. John 13, verse 37. Peter said to him, Lord, I will lay down my life for you. He also boldly proclaimed this, and we get this from Matthew's account, Matthew 26, verse 33. Peter said to him, even though all may fall away because of you, and you can just see Peter sort of nodding at these other guys over here, even though they all may fall away from you, I will never fall away. And yet, we know the story. He failed miserably even denying Jesus openly, which meant that everything he proclaimed there was just empty talk. It was necessary, therefore, that his restoration to public ministry be a public restoration in a public environment as well in front of the other disciples. So back to our text, this phrase, more than these, is referring to the other disciples who were at breakfast that morning, but the question was more like this, Peter, do you love me more than these other disciples love me? Yes, Peter certainly did need to love Jesus more than he loved other people. Yes, Peter needed to love Jesus more than he loved fishing or anything else. But Jesus was referring to Peter's boasting. He had proudly compared himself to the others. So his reinstatement needed to take place amongst the disciples. Listen, Peter was going to be used in an extraordinary way in the future, playing such a crucial role in the early church, and that role was going to require from Peter total commitment and exclusive service and passionate love for Christ. So this time, Peter's not boasting. Not boasting about his courage and his faith and his love. Instead, he just humbly appealed to the Lord's omniscience. Verse 15, Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said, in effect, Lord, despite my bitter failure, I know it's there. But I do love you, and you, love, you know that I love you. That is a better source to base anything on, by the way rather than looking at self. 
rather than looking at our own feeble understanding of ourselves or our biased understanding of ourselves, we look to ourselves and we're either unjustifiably proud as a result or we're very discouraged if we get honest with ourselves. We need to look to the Lord and what He knows and trust that. That's what Peter did. He knew that the Lord was well aware of his failings, but he was also confident that the Lord knew that in the very depths of his heart that he genuinely, sincerely loved Christ. Not not a shallow, boasting kind of love, but a sincere love. And Jesus accepted Peter's declaration and recommissioned him, verse 15. So he said to him, tend my lambs. That term, tend, translates the form of a particular verb here in Greek that was used of herdsmen who would take their sheep out to pasture. Why would they pasture their sheep so they could get food? It was also used of feeding livestock. So it has that idea of the kind of care that involves feeding. So Jesus was affirming that he was going to use Peter to shepherd, as a shepherd, to provide pastoral care over the Lord's flock. And that term translated tend does occur regularly in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, for feeding sheep. It's sometimes translated pasturing or pasture them as a verb, but it means to feed. Genesis 29.7, water the sheep and go pasture them. Go take them to the food. Genesis 37.12, then his brothers went to pasture their father's flock in Shechem. It came to have a metaphorical meaning, though, even in the Old Testament, of not just literally feeding sheep, but it had a metaphorical meaning of feeding God's people. Listen to Ezekiel 34, verse 2. Woe, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? It's this term in Greek. So back to our text, Jesus uses the word tend that way, metaphorically, for the idea of shepherding his followers. And he describes his followers as lambs. It's a way of saying a metaphor, really, that emphasizes their their immaturity, their vulnerability, their need. But notice that pronoun. It also emphasizes that they belong to him. These are my sheep, my lambs. These immature, vulnerable, needy lambs are mine, Peter, and I want you to tend them. That's Peter's role, what it was going to be as a shepherd caring for these sheep so they would come to maturity. And the present tense of the verbs that are used here mean an ongoing responsibility that he was going to fill continually. But that wasn't the end of the matter. Jesus asked the same question again, so there's point two in our outline, question number two. Verse 16, he said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? So here's Jesus continuing just to reinforce the point that love for him is the motive to faithfulness. That's the supreme motive. And Peter answered one again, once again, again appealing to the Lord's omniscience. Verse 16, he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And this time the Lord charged Peter Restated the commission again, but used a different term. Shepherd, my sheep. Shepherd's a different different verb, but it's from a, a, a word that really ends up saying the same thing. It's a synonym for the previous verb, tend, as I've said before. Both words are suitable to express what pastoral ministry and oversight entails. 
But Jesus was still not through with Peter. Question number three, verse 17. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And this time we're told that Peter was saddened. Verse 17, Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say Peter's grieved because Jesus has changed verbs and used a different one. He was not grieved over that. He was grieved because the same question was being asked three times, not different questions. So think about that. Put yourself in Peter's shoes. I mean, we can imagine that with each question, it is painful deja vu. He is painfully remembering each of the three times he denied the Lord. No wonder he was grieved. But from Jesus' perspective, this thrice-repeated probe was necessary. Peter had disowned Jesus three times. Jesus required this confession three times. Well, with Jesus homing in now in the full extent of, of the betrayal, it's very clear, three times, matching three times, Peter could again answer only by appealing to the Lord's knowledge, but this time he adds a bit to his response, verse 17, and he said to him, Lord, you know all things, and you know that I love you. This was not said in a boasting way. This was not self-righteous Peter that night in the upper room boasting about his commitment to the Lord. No trace of that self-righteousness here. It's said in all humility. He knew humbly that he could only appeal to the fact that the Lord knows everything. And that included the knowledge of Peter's heart. And the fact that Jesus knew his heart was enough for Peter. And lest there be any doubt that Peter was fully restored to future service, Jesus gave the charge a third time. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Some might read this and and think, wow, I mean, Jesus was just going overboard here. I mean, he was really rubbing salt into Peter's wounds. No, that's not what he was doing. He He was being gracious. He accepted the apostles' imperfection and was making it clear that Peter was indeed going to be used in future ministry, regardless of his past failure. You see, Peter had not acted like a man who could really be a shepherd of the Lord's sheep. To borrow a phrase, a term from that great chapter about the the good shepherd when Jesus was talking about himself as the good shepherd, he mentioned a word in there about someone who only cares about the sheep for money, a hireling, just a hired man. You could say that about Peter. He'd been acting more like a hired hand all these times, especially that night, the three denials of Jesus. He's not acting like that now. Now Jesus called him back to ministry. So his restoration was complete. If you read the story of Peter, you find that he remained faithful. He remained obedient to the Lord's commission for the rest of his life. In fact, it's so interesting what he wrote toward the end of his ministry. Three decades later, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1, listen. I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder, verse 2, shepherd the flock of God. 
Peter learned it. He goes on to say in verse 3 of 1 Peter 5, prove yourselves to be an example to the flock. Verse 4, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. I want to draw attention to a key phrase in those verses that Peter wrote. How did Peter refer to himself? As a fellow elder. You know what he did not say there at the end of his ministry? I mean, 30 years or so gone by, he didn't say, I exhort the elders among you as the first pope. Didn't say that. So therefore... How strange it is that some Roman Catholic scholars have used this passage and some others that they've misused, but even this passage they've used to establish that what was happening here after that breakfast was Christ giving Peter some special rights of power and authority. No, at the end of his ministry, he says, I, I'm just a fellow elder. This chapter does not establish that Peter had more authority than the other shepherds. Each shepherd of Jesus' sheep is to manifest this tension where there is authority inherent in the office, but at the same time, a certain humility and brokenness. And all the shepherds must give an account to the chief shepherd when he appears, Christ himself. The bottom line, Peter was reinstated to service. He was not commissioned to a position of primacy. Well, I want to leave you with then a couple of deductions from this passage for us today. What can we deduce from this for us today? And there are two of them. Deduction number one, true believers can be restored. Both these deductions are pretty obvious. True believers can be restored. And I've made this point to you before along the way because we've looked at the disciples before as a group and their failures, and their weaknesses, and their doubts, and so on and so forth. But now, what's come to the forefront is Peter's story. And so especially when we look at Peter's story and see that he was graciously and completely restored, it ought to be something we are encouraged by, that true believers can be restored, even after failure. And I would imagine that Satan hates that reality. Perhaps he's reluctantly, you know, admitting that, okay, you know, I know they're forgiven, but I don't want them to lead a happy life, you know. I don't want them to be useful, to have a useful Christian life. I don't want them to be used by the Lord in some way. I hate that even more. You see, Satan loves for us to just wallow in our misery. He loves for us to live our lives with a sense of defeat, even while we're saying, yeah, I know I'm saved, I'm going to heaven. But don't bother, you know, Eeyore. We live our lives with a sense of defeat, with a sense of hopelessness that the Lord could ever use us. Satan especially likes those who have sinned greatly after becoming a Christian to live their lives believing that their failure has pretty much put them on a lower shelf in their Christian existence and walk with Christ. They're bound to a lower plane here of function. You see, this is part of what makes the gospel such great news. We're not just forgiven. We can be restored and used. Think about what Jesus did not say. He did not say to Peter, all right, Peter, 
you're forgiven. But of course, I can never use you again. Especially in a place of leadership. No, he publicly restored Peter to his calling as a shepherd. What a blessing that for Christians who repent and who look anew to Christ for them, failure is never the final page of their story. Deduction number one, true believers can be restored. Deduction number two, also very obvious from this passage, true believers love the Lord. True believers love the Lord, and that's always been true of God's people. It's not just a New Testament teaching. You go back to the, to the Shema, the great passage in Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, and from that in Hebrew term, we get the word there, Shema, that we say, the Shema passage. Hear, O Israel, the Lord God is one. And then it goes on to say, Deuteronomy 6, 5, You shall love the Lord, your God, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. That's always been what God demands. The psalmist understood that. David failed miserably. But the theme of loving God was was always on his heart. Listen to Psalm 18 verse 1. I love you, Lord. Oh, Lord, my strength. I just love you. In the New Testament, when Jesus was asked to name the greatest commandment of the law, what did he reply? Matthew 22, verse 37. And Jesus said to them, you shall love the Lord God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. In other words, not different compartments of it, but with just everything we are. And we think about what Christ has done for us and how he's loved us and it prompts our love in return. Paul even said that in 2 Corinthians 5.14, for the love of Christ controls us, it motivates us. We think about the one who died for our sins and we're, we're motivated, we're propelled to love him in return. And Paul issued a warning in 1 Corinthians 16.22, if anyone does not love the Lord, he's accursed. But it's just, not just the Gospels and Paul, James, James 1, verse 12. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to all those who love him. Eternal life is for those who love the Lord. James 2, verse 5, he promised the kingdom to those who love him. And Peter wrote this in 1 Peter. I read to you 1 Peter 5, but listen to 1 Peter 1a. It's a verse that I, I think about a lot in my life, and I mention it from time to time. 1 Peter 1.8, though we have not seen him, we love him. So the question that Jesus asked Peter is still the question that needs to be asked today and answered. Jesus still asks, do you love me? Thankfully, he didn't say it like this. Do you love me perfectly? Do you love me as much as I deserve? We would all be turned away. He just simply asked for our love. And if we belong to Jesus, then just like Peter, even though we're filled with the great awareness of who we are and our failure and our self-doubt and our shame, we can answer, Lord, you know, you know all my failings, all my weaknesses, all my needs, but you also know that, yes, I do love you. 
And isn't it obvious that implied in that is a, then a desire to grow in that love through the years? To love him more completely? And the way to love Jesus more fully and more completely is pretty simple. It's to spend time with him. You spend time with him, you'll love him more. I mean, we do long to be with those we love. And for us, that means eager to open up his word. That's how we spend time with him. And we read it that way, not just to mark off something for our quiet time for the day, but how does this help me love Christ more? It means being eager to fervently open up our hearts to him in prayer, to talk to him. I'll end with these words from William Cooper. What a great lyricist. We sing some of his lyrics in our hymns. Listen to this. Lord, it is my chief complaint that my love is weak and faint, yet I love thee and adore, but oh, for grace to love thee more. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this little vignette this picture, this, this snapshot of this part of that scene in this last chapter of John where we're reminded what is the very essence and basics of what it means to be a follower of Christ as we come to love Jesus. We confess it's imperfectly. We love you imperfectly, Lord. We do not love you as in the way you deserve to be loved, but we do love you. Thank you for opening our hearts giving us faith that we might believe and trust in Christ and then live a life learning what it means to love him more. I pray for anyone here that can't answer that question. Yes, Lord, I do love you. I pray you would bring them to that place of humility where they humbly admit their sinfulness and that they need to be forgiven so that they can start this life of learning to love the Lord more. In our Savior's name, amen. As you're able, please stand together. <clears throat> we sing of the full humanity and full deity of our Savior, Jesus Christ, through the hymn, Infant Holy, Infant Lowly.
so that we can uh, welcome some new members into our church family, which is always a, a moment of blessing for us. Uh, in the uh, first service, we had the joy of welcoming personally uh, Cameron and Abby uh, Baxter. And uh, Cameron and Abby are part of, uh, again, the fruit of that California rescue ministry that we have going on. And uh, they were down further south, I think even getting closer to San Diego. It's kind of nice down there. But, uh, but Emily, so glad that they've moved over here. And some of you don't know, so I'll tell you that uh, Abby is Emily Gumprick's sister. So there's a, a literal family connection now in our church family. So we're glad to have Cameron and Abby. And then in this service, we get to welcome the Sands, Andrew and Pam Sands. You guys need to come on down. I didn't see where you were sitting. But uh, all the way down here. There you are, over there. You're kind of behind me over there. So Adam and Pam, they have a son, Noah. We're so glad to welcome Adam and Pam into our church family as well, the Sands, S-A-N-D-S. So when you see Cameron and Abby and Andrew and Pam, their family, you can officially say hello to them and tell them who you are. Thank you so much, guys. You can be seated. Just a close closing announcement or two, the... Uh, This Wednesday night is a special family night for us. We do that the first Wednesday night of every month, but this time we're going to be not only enjoying some baptisms, we have three folks to be baptized, that's so exciting, and then we're going to be talking about our building project, Uh, another little update on that, specifically on the financial side and raising money for that, and uh, we'll answer a question that's come up about, about the playground as well. So you need to come Wednesday night for all of that. And then you need to be looking ahead and making sure you come to the Christmas concerts. I mean, this is the Christmas season. We've got four Sundays, five Sundays in uh, December this year, I think it is. But we've got four Sundays here. Uh, Christmas is on Sunday. So we're going to be singing more opportunities to sing uh, these wonderful Christmas carols and to think about the, uh, the incarnation of Christ, which the incarnation of Christ took place in Nazareth. That's where he was conceived. The incarnation took place, took on flesh. He was born, it was made manifest in Bethlehem. So you can think about that, ponder that. But uh, we're singing about all of that, and so that's a joy. There's two nights of concerts. There'll be other music going on ahead of the concerts on Friday night and Sunday night out in the lobby. Come. We're also having uh, cookies and stuff like that out there while you can be out in the lobby and, and, uh, and listen to some carols out there. And then we'll have the concert on Friday night and one on Sunday night. So pick one of those, invite some folks to come. Be praying for those because the gospel is shared, as you know, at those uh, concerts. The food drive is in full swing thanks to the, our student ministries for de- uh, decorating the barrels and taking those, uh, those barrels and making them look nice uh, here in our lobby. And so you can get a list in the bulletin or a list on the outside of the barrel. Some folks have already started bringing items. So we want to fill up all six barrels with a way to help this ministry uh, have enough food for meals for the men that they minister to. Keep praying for our missionaries in Italy. And uh, you'll be seeing some new missionaries in the bulletin soon. But other stuff, uh, this is the kind of getting down to the end of the cookbook. So I don't want to cause a stampede here. So I'm, I'm even hesitant to say what I'm about to say. I say it with fear and trepidation. There are only 30 left. Okay? So if you're getting stocking stuffers like Pam and I are, I didn't want my kids to hear that, uh, then, uh, boy, you better do that. 
you know, because they're running out. The cookbook, the official Twin City Bible Church cookbook, and it's only, what, $10, something like that. Yeah, so this is out there in the lobby to table. Well, if you're visiting with us, thanks for being here. I hope I get to meet you. I'll be uh, mingling around the lobby out there. We have a book, some books we'd love to give you as a gift. So stop by the table and say hello to me, visitors. And uh, the rest of you, you're dismissed. Meet somebody you don't know. Officially welcome, guys. Uh, so glad to have you a part of us. Hey, Noah, good to see you again. Good to see you, Noah.